Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is entitled The Order of St. Guinefor and addresses the very sensitive issue of martial arts elitism. I'm specifically looking at the emergence of the sheepdog moniker many in the martial arts world have adopted. I recall once hearing that the famous martial artist Don Draeger said he believed his presence in any room made the place safer. This was down to the fact that he was there to not only defend the inhabitants from violence, but he also had control of his own violent skills and chose not to use them outside of self-defence. There is definitely something admirable about taking on the role of protector. Indeed, it's probably the noblest reasoning anyone might offer to explain why they began their training. However, what happens when sense of responsibility mutates into arrogance and an inflated sense of superiority over other human beings? Are systems and institutions of protection always enough to prevent bullies from being trained? I hope you enjoy the show. The dog, being the oldest domesticated animal in history, has become a symbol of loyalty. Due to their ancient pack-like nature and their convergent evolution with humans, Dogs have long established a strong reputation for being our most resolute natural bodyguards. Likewise, wild animal metaphors such as snakes and wolves are regularly used to describe those who prey on humanity. Although these figures are firmly cast as irredeemable enemies, it is normal for a defender to grant them some form of professional respect. Curiously, such respect is not always extended to those who they protect and serve. The bitterness, resentment and disdain they show these civilians comes from a feeling that, like many a dog companion, Society's protectors often get the raw end of the deal from those they serve. Consider the following well-travelled story. A French nobleman leaves his castle near Châtillon-sur-Chalignon to go hunting. He leaves his infant son under the sole protection of his faithful greyhound, Guinefort. Upon his return, the noble is horrified to see the nursery in a shambles. The cop is overturned and Guinefort stands to greet his master with blood dripping from his jaws. The man does not hesitate. His baby son has been killed by this duplicious and savage animal he took to be his most loyal servant. He draws his sword and slays the dog. Suddenly, the man hears a baby's cry coming from near the fallen crib. There, he discovers his son, safe and sound. Nearby lies the body of a viper. Its corpse displays the bites of a dog. Realising his terrible mistake, the man and his family give Guineafore an honourable burial, down a well which they pile with stones and mark with the planting of a tree. The site becomes a shrine where locals pray to Guineafore and miracles are performed. Although the story is a product of fiction, Guineafore became a folk saint and a medieval Catholic cult grew up around him that apparently lasted for around 700 years, ending in the 1930s. With this story comes a tragic message of the way we mistreat our defenders. I first encountered a version of the tale at primary school when I read an illustrated book of mythology. The story I read was not of Guineafore, but of the brave Guet, a wolfhound, who was a gift to Prince Llewellyn from King John of England. This time the villain of the piece was a great wolf, which Guet killed in a titanic struggle only to meet the same tragic fate as his French counterpart due to Llewellyn's impulsive reaction. No religious shrine or folk cult was set up in Guet's name, but an enterprising late 18th century landlord of the Royal Goat Inn, David Pritchard, manufactured a connection with the story of the legendary dog with his village. Bedgillet created a grave mound with a cairn of stones and had two slate memorials inscribed in Welsh and English, telling his version of the tale. The village's name means Grave Gillette, but this name comes from a human saint that hitherto has no proven connection to Wells's legendary canine hero. 
Prince Llewellyn also appears to have been added by Pritchard. Guinefort's story is perhaps the most internationally famous version of the Loyal Hound folktale. Its oldest known version comes from the ancient Indian Panchatantra, where the loyal and unjustly slain saviour is the mongoose brother of the baby. A Malaysian version casts a tame bear as the martyred protector and the tiger as the predator. However, the image of a dog has become the most persistent and the most universally relatable in the various adaptations. From fictional tearjerkers to animal charity commercials, we're all quite aware of the tragic trope of man's best friend getting the rough end of the deal for his loyal service. What made me think about the Gillette version of the story in relation to martial arts subculture is the replacement of the venomous snake with the wolf. My lasting first memory of the story in that school library book is the dramatic realist artwork depicting the life and death struggle between Gillette and the huge wolf. The striking piece showed the fierce gigantic wolf charging forward with the valiant wolfhound hanging from his throat. The picture gives the wolf a size advantage and you might speculate that Gillette has ambushed him. It provides a spectacular depiction of man's loyalist offender selflessly throwing himself at his world opposite number. To look back at the picture and know what became of this noble saviour brings another level of poignancy to this powerful image. And see why a serving soldier or police officer might see the guard dog as an apt metaphor. Guard dogs, like society's professional protectors, are conditioned and trained to use violence in defence. Likewise the wolf, that wild reminder of what dogs can be without domestication, provides a perfect enemy. He seeks out those he perceives to be easy prey. European folklore features the wolf heavily in its fables and tales as an agent of harsh consequence to those who fail to acknowledge the words of the wise. From the boy who cried wolf to the early versions of Little Red Riding Hood, we're provided with plenty of examples of such foolish prey. An old Italian version of the loyal dog story casts the hero as a sheepdog who's slain by the shepherd under the mistaken belief he attacked the sheep he was supposed to guard. The hasty shepherd then discovers the body of a wolf. This particular telling the tale provides us with the most appropriate metaphor for this podcast. It brings us to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's famous essay chapter on sheep, wolves and sheepdogs. The piece has been republished many times and can easily be found on the net. It was further popularised via the 2014 Chris Kyle biopic American Sniper, where Grossman's summary of these three types of people is quoted by Carl's father at the dinner table as a philosophical lesson to his two sons. The subject has become something of a signature piece in Grossman's lectures and can be heard on his bulletproof mind. In essence, Grossman's philosophy looks at the world from a purely combative point of view. There are the members of the society who are consistent victims due to their totally oblivious attitude towards the threat of violence. They live in denial. They work and they live believing that violence won't happen to them. These are the sheep. Then there are life's predators who prey on the sheep, the violent criminals. These are the wolves. Finally, there are the protectors, usually soldiers and police, but anyone who makes a moral choice to take on the wolves. The sheep can only survive and prosper because of the work done by the sheepdogs to protect them from the wolves. Grossman provides us with a simplistic view of humanity, revealing a thinly veiled disdain that is characteristic of martial elitism, by telling us that he does not feel the sheep is morally inferior than the sheepdog, and that the term isn't intended to be an insult, it's hard to view these sheep through a positive lens when their defining trait is living a life in denial. In one recording, he outright calls the sheep mentality pathetic, so I'm not quite sure how seriously we're supposed to take Grossman's insistence he means no contempt for those in society who are neither wolf nor sheepdog. I have a lot of time and respect for Dave Grossman's work. I recommend a lot of it to those wishing to study self-protection. I've referenced it on this podcast and in my own writings, and I will do so again. His most famous work on killing is a vital resource for understanding what it takes to confront violence. Despite their flaws, on combat and bulletproof mind offer much needed information on the aftermath of a violent situation and the dangers of sleep deprivation. 
However, what also runs through them is Grossman's personal and somewhat politicised view on the corruption of society. He allows this view to colour his reports on the Columbine High School massacre. Not only does he lay the blame at the door of certain media influences which are a common target for his criticisms, he even follows the knee-jerk belief that teenagers who are into certain rock bands are a risk. For the most objective and evidence-based study on the Columbine tragedy, please read Dave Cullen's excellent book, Columbine. At the risk of sounding like I'm doing another backtrack, this isn't to say that I don't think On Sheep, Wolves and Sheepdogs is a chapter without merit. I understand the need for individuals to take on the responsibility of being a protector. Society does need them. Human predators are a real threat in society, and I think there is good evidence to suggest the behaviours of certain violent criminals are comparable to the way a predatory species attacks its intended prey. In fact, I base a lot of my asymmetrical, self-defence, counter-offensive techniques on this principle. Finally, the sheep message has some value. Denial is just one of many problems that individuals need to overcome when they make the decision to train in self-protection. In fact, I post a lot of videos online that show real-life situations that many people simply post up in response, how could anyone have avoided that attack? How, what could anyone have done? And it boils it all right back down to having a different state of mind when you go out into public. We need to be able to have different levels of awareness depending on where we are what time it is, who are the type of people that are around us. However, we should be mindful of the subculture that this philosophy has helped nurture. Whereas lectures like Bulletproof Mind have squarely directed to professional sheepdogs, the sword of the military and the shield of law enforcement, as Dave Grossman describes them, many in the civilian martial arts world see the sentiment being extended to them. Indeed, Grossman, who states that becoming a sheepdog is possible even if one is born a sheep, does not appear to be against this idea and says that the mental transformation can be achieved by making a moral choice. Two of my friends in the self-protection teaching world, Rory Miller and Ron Goyne, are military veterans who voluntarily and honourably serve their countries. They have observed and written about the potential problems in Grossman's chapter. They wrote two astute critiques that unpack the problems of this simplistic view. Rory Miller explained that the original metaphor came from an unnamed Korean War veteran, and he believes the sheepdog's meaning has become warped. Rory explains that it is supposed to convey the point that soldiers have more in common with enemy soldiers than they do with the civilian population they were protecting, or the people who employed them. At the risk of stating a blindingly obvious about the metaphor, the sheepdog is a far closer relative to the wolf than he is to the sheep or even the shepherd he serves. However, rather than acknowledge the introspective poignancy and profundity of this message, the modern self-protection world often adopt it, to paraphrase Rory, as a badge to feel superior. Whereas it might seem easy to look upon a contemporary developed democratic civilization like the USA as being divided up into the sheep-like civilians who are far removed from violence, predatory wolf-like criminals who can easily bully these inexperienced masses, and the uniformed sheepdogs that have been trained to deal with these predators, how exactly do these metaphors apply to Imperial Japan or Communist North Korea? Who were the sheep, wolves and sheepdogs in those societies? Looking towards democratic societies, we can see Grossman's argument that by their very definition, serving people have made a noble and brave choice to defend others. Soldiers are supposed to protect and serve their country. They fight the enemies that mean harm to their society, our country and our people. Their purpose is to handle the ugliness of extremely ugly violence so that civilians don't have to face these problems. The police serve a similar role at home, protecting law-abiding citizens from the acts and ways of criminals. There have been periods in recent times when recruitment marketing for the military carried a strong elitist message. 
99.9% need not apply with the old advertising slogan for Britain's Royal Marines. Yet in May 2018, the RAND Corporation's exhaustive study reported that the top five reasons for an individual joining the armed forces were adventure and travel, benefits, job stability and pay, and job training. These findings really aren't at odds with decisions the average person makes with many occupational choices. This isn't to say the work that's carried out by the military or law enforcement isn't exceptional, or that the people who did it aren't brave or public-spirited. They often are all these things. However, I often feel it's an insult to their intelligence to be condescended to as if they were fantasy comic book heroes, and there isn't anything healthy in enhancing any sense of alienation between them and the rest of society. Ron Goyden's experiences in the military did not reveal a separate breed of human, but proved that all the same character types and personalities were as much present in the armed forces as they were in civilian life. Within the military, just as any other institution, Ron points out that many a grossman wolf has ducked the stringent screening process. The same might be said of the police force. There have been periods in antiquity, the Middle Ages and early modern history, just as there are today when soldiers were expected, encouraged and even ordered to carry out atrocities. But equally, there are many noted periods throughout history when generals felt they needed to impose harsh rules to prevent this sort of behaviour. The presence of the latter demonstrates that even the harshest of discipline and controls has its work cut out in the face of a good percentage of armed, hot-blooded people in positions of power. These invading hordes might as well have been ravenous packs of wolves to many occupied people at their mercy. The simple fact that most militaries have now long-standing and full-time employed internal police departments, and likewise law enforcement have their own established departments solely set up to investigate corruption, demonstrates a mature acceptance that serving people are no more human than anyone else. To dissect the metaphor further, Rory Miller explains that the sheepdog's role as protector of the sheep is subject to the orders of his master, the shepherd. This brings us closer to the original definition of the phrase that Rory describes, where the sheepdog just fits a job role and it isn't necessarily a moral decision. A good portion of 20th century Europe would have seen the Nazi sheepdogs would have largely felt they were protecting their side civilians and their civilians' best interests as undeniable wolves. Therefore, it would be difficult to argue their virtues protectors if you are either one of the many persecuted ethnic minorities that came under the SS police force jackboot or the countries that were invaded by the Nazi military. In modern times, there have been many a sheepdog that has turned on the flock he once protected. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, America's most prolific serial murderer, volunteered to fight in Vietnam and saw action, serving in the US Navy. The son of Sam, serial killer David Berkowitz, enlisted in the US Army working nationally and in South Korea. UK serial murderer of 15 young men. Dennis Nielsen served in the Army for 11 years and earned a General Service Medal. Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane serial killer, had a successful 18 and a half year career as an army soldier, where he piloted both planes and helicopters, earning several medals. Yates murdered at least 13 and possibly over 20 people whilst on military leave and after he left the army with full retirement benefits. Other keen and decorated soldiers include the infamous Beltway Sniper Spree Killer, Sergeant John Allen Mohammed, who co-murdered 10 innocent civilians after being honourably discharged from 17 years of service that won him several medals and ribbons. Not to forget the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, a decorated veteran of Operation Desert Storm, who killed 168 people and injured 680 others. McVeigh is a special case in point that warrants attention given his conspiracy theory paranoia that comes disturbingly close to the fear warmongering we see among being peddled by some members of the reality-based self-defense martial arts subculture and a few of their survivalist cousins. It also needs to be mentioned because Dave Grossman is mindful of the case and writes about it a fair amount. However, this is a point I will return to later. 
Meanwhile, modern law enforcement hasn't escaped its share of the uniformed wolves that have thrived in their sheepdog roles. Swedish serial arsonist and killer Tor Hayden was so popular in his job that prior to the discovery of his crimes, a rally was arranged to keep him as the city's local police officer. David Middleton was an ex-Miami cop who was found guilty of murdering two women and is suspected of killing a third in the 1990s. In 2012, it was reported that Zeng Kegu, an armed officer in the People's Liberation Army, was suspected of killing at least six people as they withdrew money from their banks in China. His crimes had first come to light in 2004, and he's apparently still at large. Then there are those wolves that served both in the military and the police. John Reg Christie's enthusiasm for both could be seen as enlisting in the army in World War I, where he suffered a gas attack, and then enlisting as a special reserve police constable during World War II. Christie would become infamous for the ten Rillington Place murders. Lieutenant Christopher Dorner simultaneously served as a naval reservist and a Los Angeles Police Department officer. He was honorably discharged from the former, earning a reputation for honesty. He was fired from the latter after his case against his training officer failed. After his appeals against his termination were dismissed, Dorner posted a manifesto online listing four law enforcement personnel he was willing to kill. Amongst the four people he killed was the daughter of his own attorney. Dorner and McVeigh's conspiracy paranoia might have been opposite ends of the political spectrum, but they share principles we see in the philosophy of many a self-proclaimed martial arts sheepdog. As if to throw cruel scorn on the wolf and sheepdog metaphor, some killers with sheepdog pass were given wolf nicknames. Mikhail Popkov used his uniform and patrol car to lure at least 22, some say 30 women to their deaths. The savage nature of his crimes earned him the nickname the werewolf. Ex-soldier Fritz Harman, who terrorised Hanover, killing at least 27 homeless young men, was sometimes referred to as the wolfman. Harman was honourably discharged from the military twice on physical and mental health grounds first as a teenager at an academy, and later he did his compulsory service. The murderer described his days in the forces as the happiest in his life, and he won praise for his senior officers as an exemplary soldier and an excellent marksman. Despite mounting up a varied criminal record, Arman spent a lot of his time socialising with his local police force. His job as a hawker and a fence made him an effective police informant, where he earned the nickname Detective Harmon. During his murder trial, he was even allowed to smoke a cigar and reportedly wasn't cautioned to publicly berating some of the understandably distressed witnesses. Likewise, the co-ed killer, Ed Kemper, failed to join the police force due to his size and previous conviction for killing his grandparents as a child. But that didn't stop him from spending a lot of his free time socialising with the police at his local station whilst he was secretly murdering students. Dave Grossman says he refused financial incentives to talk for the defence in the trial of Timothy McVeigh as an expert witness. He morally could not subscribe to the argument being made that the military had conditioned the mass killer. In the end, Grossman was assigned to the prosecution without payment. Grossman's choice is in line with the evidence. No one, including Grossman, who has done a lot of great work in this area, is denying the serious problems that many serving soldiers and police officers face after their exposure to violence. However, the modern institutions in much of the developed world have adapted well to train individuals to responsibly apply their skills and not to misuse their positions of authority. It's important to note, for all the notorious murderers that have had unblemished and sometimes highly decorated careers in the military, there's a good number who could not hack the life. The BTK killer's military career was deemed unremarkable. The Houston serial killer, Dean Cole, loathed his time in the army. Others, like Jeffrey Dahmer, were kicked out due to their alcoholism. Leonard Lake was discharged after being diagnosed with a schizoid personality disorder, and his future co-serial killer, Charles Ng, a martial arts fantasist amongst other things, spent most of his career as a U.S. Marine 
in military prison before being dishonourably discharged. There is no compelling case or science-based evidence that the military or law enforcement turns normal people into violent criminals. However, it might be reasonably suggested that these institutions attract them, and recognising them isn't a straightforward or easy process. This point brings the matter closer to home. Martial arts, since it's been promoted to the general public, has latched onto the old bodybuilding marketing gimmick that it is the solution to bullying problems. I recall attending a taekwondo tournament and hearing a fellow student moan to me, I thought martial arts were just supposed to be for us little guys. Bruce Lee's Fist of Fury echoed this sentiment on a nationalist front, portraying weakened China as the underdog against the occupying Japanese bullies around the turn of the 20th century. Many in the martial arts world, particularly the reality-based self-defence subculture, have embraced the modern sheep-wolf-sheepdog metaphor, in line with the traditional Budo concepts that were touted in late 19th century imperial Japan. A large part of martial arts' commercial branding has been based on the idea that training imparted a virtuous philosophy. Martial artists weren't just learning how to hurt or kill, they were being disciplined to be good people. This has led to the propagation of a type of elitist Bushido. There is a certain romantic ideal about the way martial arts training either changes or deters bad guys. I recall an instance in my old Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu club when a bully joined the club. He was brash and loud, full of swagger. Nature had made him naturally large and this had probably allowed him to physically push his way through most of his life into the position of a door supervisor, establishing a local reputation. He was misogynistic with the women who worked at the gym that hosted our club asking the co-owner if she wanted to scrub his back in the shower. He was disrespectful to the lesson being taught, spending much of the time when lessons were being shown shadow boxing on his own. However, I recall the other co-owner of the gym, a veteran martial artist coach and street fighter, reassuring all those who discussed this troublesome new character that the club's organic process would sort out the problem. That's exactly what happened. After one round of sparring with one of the club's smaller junior grades, the bully made his excuses and did not return. However, it would be wrong to suggest that all martial artists are virtuous, law-abiding people and their institutions naturally reject predatory behaviour. With no real official regulation or standardisation, their bag is probably even more mixed than that of the military and the police. Bullying is as common in the martial arts world as it is in any other industry or subculture. In the wake of more victims coming forward, the lists of sexual offenders that have taught and still actively teach martial arts are quite alarming. Such offences are not restricted to one sector of the industry either, but raise many questions regarding the way self-policing works in general. Martial arts bullies come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes there are those who have been persecuted and now appear to be repaying the favour once they have claimed the power they were once denied. Sometimes there are versions of the natural bully I previously described who decides to stay the course. There have been several occasions when I've been training with individuals that appear to be the model of hard work and dedication who at the flip of a switch turned on someone they believed to be their inferior. One teacher and respected fighter who invited me into his home and his inner circle of students was nothing but respectful to me and was someone I counted as a friend, yet he would suddenly reveal another disturbing side to his personality at a moment's notice. We would be training in a gym and he would suddenly pick on some other fighter who was minding his own business. Other times he would discuss going into rougher parts of town to test our skills. These were few and far between incidents that were totally at odds with how he generally behaved but provided me with an insight at a young age with how elitist and tribal thinking works. An examination of some of history's most venerated martial arts heroes reveals that many of them have the attributes of bullies. Starting with Japan's most famous samurai, Musashi Momoto, we see a combative career that was largely based upon picking fights and coercing others into fighting. The chivalric knights of Europe were no better. 
Moving to more modern times, Gozo Shiodo of Yoshinkan Aikido fame describes testing his skills in fights he purposely sought out in bars. But hey, I hear you cry. Perhaps he's the exception of the rule. Any branch can grow crooked when it moves away from its original source. But when we look at Yushiba Morhei's less than soft treatment of his compliant ukis or students, the way of harmony has a distinctive other side. I've always had a problem with teachers unnecessarily hurting students when they're going through a compliant technique. There is a big and obvious gap between showing the effectiveness of a technique against a willing student and abusing the privilege. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu seems less guilty of this crime, having a strong culture based on resistance-based training. However, this noble fighting philosophy was born out of a desire to test their system, originally known as Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, against other arts. The founders and many of their descendants today followed a doctrine that they had the superior fighting style and were willing to prove it. Whilst admirable in one sense, this led to fighters not only issuing challenges in baking other styles in media marketing, but actively going to other clubs and humiliating teachers in front of their students. On the subject of the use of the media, I look back at the boxing feud between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier with mixed emotions. Even Ali admitted he regretted the way his pre-fight publicity, blended with his own philosophical ideas at the time and personal propaganda, deeply affected Frazier. The tribal aspect of martial arts is a very lengthy subject indeed, so much so that I've dedicated an entire book to it, and I believe it is the strong foundation for what I call the bullshitsu virus. There is also an essay in my published collection, Mordred's Victory, entitled Mixed Martial Arts and the Quest for Integrity, that looks at the unjustified way the traditional martial arts world has scorned mixed martial arts for its apparent lack of integrity. I am not going to wander down the extremely complicated road that addresses stylism, but when discussing the specific issue of elitism, one cannot exclude the idea of otherness. Rory Miller, an experienced soldier from a military family, appears to have little time for the sheep metaphor. Yes, many people in the developed world have been pacified and indoctrinated to value passivity as a virtue and have become complacent in the privilege of not being under violent threat every day. But they're still apex predators beneath all these artificial constraints. They are still the product of an evolution that saw their smaller and far less intelligent ancestors climb their way to the top of the food chain. Almost anyone is capable of being violent if the right buttons are pushed. This isn't to dismiss training and mindset that would be extremely foolish. But there are many examples of people who did not choose to be protectors. Instead, situations and circumstances made them feel that they had no other option. Although it is rare for anyone to rise to the occasion under the pressure, the right negative motivation can convince others to take the right steps to raise their level of training. In his rebuttal of On Sheep, Wolves and Sheepdogs, Ron Goyne gave the example of Medal of Honor awardee Alvin C. York. York was the unlikeliest sheepdog anyone could imagine. Undisciplined and unruly, he frequently got into drunken fights and he showed zero interest in becoming a soldier. In 1915, he was part of an extreme pacifist religious congregation and according to Ron's research, there's some evidence supporting the claim that York applied for conscientious objector status during World War I. Ron describes the actions that York took during World War I that won him his medal to be more based on a kill-or-be-killed motivation than a moral choice. Ron also picked up on the way the word civilian has become an elitist byword used by some service personnel. He referenced other commentators who had also noticed that this disdain had found its way into the police force community and who had laid the blame directly at Dave Grossman's door. The sheep insult has allowed for individuals with no background in the military or law enforcement to have a similar type of disdain for those they don't believe are switched on to the sheepdog mindset. This is perfect for the elitist martial artist. Ron says that he's even encountered civilians who have called him a sheep despite the fact that he has a solid background in the military, including instructing military units. 
Elitism not only alienates, but it polarizes people and leads to the inner decay of training institutions, ultimately leading to inefficiency. It blocks self-awareness when self-awareness matters. Elitism breeds prejudice, and it was prejudice that seriously affected two very high-profile serial killer cases on different sides of the Atlantic. Yorkshire police were criticised for their insensitive handling of information provided by early surviving victims of the Yorkshire Ripper due to prejudicial ideas about West Indian society. Leeds police had a bad reputation regarding racism at the time, and for this reason, argues criminal historian Martin Fido, Marcella Claxton's early descriptions of the killer was not taken seriously. This police force was further criticised for misleading the general public to believe that the killer was targeting prostitutes, but most of the victims weren't working girls at all. Over in the USA, two African-American women called police to the scene of a crime, where they discovered a drugged and bleeding 14-year-old Asian boy who had just escaped from Milwaukee cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment. The police chose to believe Dahmer and returned the boy to his apartment the serial killer subsequently continued his assault, killed and dismembered the boy. The police officers were suspended when recorded evidence from the police radio was submitted to the two men cracking homophobic jokes about reuniting the couple. As the latter part of the 20th century drew to a close, militaries and police forces in the developed world realised that more work needed to be done to forge stronger relationships with civilians, and they made huge leaps to win more support and trust. The strength of disciplining officers to continually look outside in an objective and understanding fashion, rather than to be drawn back into the comfort of one's own institution, has proven to be an effective way forward. I've had the privilege of training under some excellent teachers with military and law enforcement backgrounds. I count a good number of good friends as ex or serving soldiers and police officers who would agree on the simplistic damage that can occur when we start calling people sheep. Many martial arts have the military to thank for their origins and also for better development. A good part of my self-defense and martial arts training comes directly from teachers who gained a lot of their education serving their country and protecting others. We should look to the military and law enforcement not only for their combat experience but also their training methods. On a personal note, I have a profound respect for the good work these services provide. Many members of my family served and served well. My great-uncle even co-wrote a book on his time in the RAF during World War II called High Endeavour. One future director from my culture was a spy who was amongst the first to report on Nazi Germany's rearming. Outside of the martial arts world, and to stretch the dog analogy idea further, I've worked for two solid years with dog trainers and colonels in the Royal Veterinary Corps to create animal trainer apprenticeships. I found them to be the most open-minded and progressive people who sat on our consultation panel. So, in case there is any misunderstanding, this is not a critique levelled at the good people who give their lives wielding either Grossman's sword or shield. I'm not going to commit the crimes of jumping to hasty generalisations as the masters did in the fables about loyal animals. Humans are complex individuals that take on different jobs for different reasons. There is an understandable level of frustration felt amongst those who have to deal with violence on a regular basis, be they our soldiers, our police officers, our prison guards, security guards or door supervisors, towards the naive many who either endanger themselves through adopting an attitude of denial regarding very real threats of violence, or point an unjust finger of accusation against their protectors. However, sadly, that is the burden of doing one's job well. Likewise, we all might consider the work so many people do that aren't involved in fighting violence, yet without their involvement everyone's life would be much poorer. The other emergency services like the fire service, the doctors and nurses, the farmers, the waste disposers, the utility workers that keep the water running and power going. Then there are those who fight ignorance, allowing for much of the above to be improved, the teachers and the truly objective journalists. Yes, those people really do exist. Please consider my thoughts, inspired by soldier friends who are concerned about the emergence of a cult-like call to arms. As a cautionary word, 
to those who see themselves as protectors, not feel disdain towards those they have chosen to protect. This includes those who teach and train in the civilian world of martial arts. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this show. I appreciate it's a controversial subject, and I'm not just talking about the way I've murdered several languages, including Indian, Welsh, Japanese, and French. This topic has been a particularly difficult one for me to tackle, and I haven't chosen it lightly. A few bits of news. My two-part interview with Ian Abernethy is currently live on his excellent podcast. I was thrilled to be asked to be on this show. Ian and I always have very lengthy discussions where we bounce ideas off each other and explore different topics. He decided it was time to share one of those experiences with the public at large. The scheduled one-hour broadcast ended up being two and a half hours, and that's the edited version. There's a real wide range of information on there, mainly focusing on the Bullshitsu series of books and my children's self-protection, so please check out these episodes. I'd also like to draw your attention to some of the other excellent podcasts out there. Not only is there Ian's show, but there's also the very professionally produced and always educational Chris Wilder's show. I had the privilege of meeting Chris in person this year uh, when he was running a seminar for Ian in the UK. The three-way discussions we had were extremely inspirational. I came away from it with dozens of ideas for lessons, articles and podcasts. Chris produces a lot of great content on a regular basis and has some fascinating discussions on this show with people like the great Lawrence Kane. T.W. Smith is another gold standard martial arts podcaster over the Atlantic. His Kung Fu podcast just keeps going from strength to strength. Gretchen Carlson's Martial Journeys recently caught my attention too. This type of in-depth analysis of martial arts is definitely the way forward and she handles it in a very entertaining style. And don't forget Sensei Ando's Fight for a Happy Life podcast either. A guy who combines great information and humour is always welcome on my playlist. All these guys set the bar so high I'm getting a digital hernia attempting to reach it. As previously mentioned, there's also my friend Lee Sims' podcast, Striking Thoughts. Ian has beaten me to it and interviewed Lee on the subject of law in an upcoming show. For those of you who enjoyed my two episodes on the aftermath, you can consider Ian's interview with Lee to be an honorary third part. It hasn't been produced yet, but I'm sure it's going to be great. I'm teaching a seminar in Worcester, UK for Cajun Rue on Sunday the 23rd of September this year. The first half of the day will be my children's self-protection program and the second half will cover my Club Chimera Martial Arts cross-training methods. The seminar is being kindly hosted by Peter Jones. The link is in the show notes of this podcast. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please be sure to subscribe to them on iTunes, Buzzsprout, or whatever platform you use. Please share and tell your friends about the show. Your positive reviews and ratings are of enormous help. Please also keep updated via my social media outlets. I have Club Chimera business pages on Google, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, which I regularly update with new content. My regular blog is published on the Club Chimera website, clubchimera.com. Please leave reviews where you can and share them far and wide. This really means a lot to me and helps support the show. Next episode, I'll be pursuing another controversial subject, but in a totally different direction. The show is entitled The Yoga Myth. Thanks for listening.